should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. LMNOP and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and we're here at the Commonwealth Club. Again, it's our official second production, so that means John Zipper, my co-host, is here with us. John, it's this is just so exciting. Hey, Michelle. Glad to have you here. Glad to have our guest here. Glad to have people in the audience. Yeah. Welcome. This is the first time. So for those of you who are sitting in the audience, uh, what we're doing here is a brand new partnership with the Commonwealth Club. We're going to have a live audience. Somebody said it's like a Regis and Kelly thing. I don't think so. Maybe. Could you be Regis? I've never watched that show, so <laughs> <laughs> probably not. No. So we're still in beta testing, and, and what, what, what's so great about it is that we're bringing constant LGBTQ inclusive programming to the Commonwealth Club. So... We'll be taping here Thursdays at 10 o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll always include LGBTQI thought leaders. So for our second official program, we have Kate Kendall, who is the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. NCLR is celebrating their 40th year anniversary. So John and I thought it would be a great conversation to bring in thought leaders who are part of organizations that are iconic and who have done an incredible amount of work for LGBTQ equality. Kate, welcome to the program. I'm so happy to be here and be part of this uh, inaugural partnership. This is, uh, this is fantastic. Um, well, I mean, I was just so honored to have been at the NCLR gala and it just dawned on me, it hit me that, wow, this organization has been around for 40 years, like 40 years. So I'm wondering, what was like the first official case? Like what was it that sparked you know, the need for NCLR 40 years ago? Well, it's 1977, so I was a junior in high school at the time, had no idea, was somewhat aware of my blossoming uh, sexual orientation, which would be other than heterosexuality. Uh, in Ogden, Utah, I knew that would not be well received or accepted. <laughs> and while I was doing what I was doing as a junior in high school, uh, Donna Hitchens was graduating from Bolt Law School, uh, UC Berkeley School of Law, and took a $5,000 grant from the Berkeley Women's Law Foundation and founded what was then the Lesbian Rights Project, a small project of equal rights advocates. And she did so because she knew as a graduating law student what I, was, what I also knew as a junior in high school, and that is this world was not safe for lesbians or for queer people generally. And at that point, there were a couple of organizations doing gay rights work, um, believe it or not, working to get uh, 
soldiers in the military be able to stay in the military as an openly gay soldier and repeal laws that criminalized same-sex sexual intimacy. So those fights were still way back then happening. But nothing was happening to address the issues primarily affecting lesbians. This was losing, losing our jobs, losing custody of our kids. So right off the bat, uh, that is what Lesbian Rights Project was doing, representing lesbians who had lost custody of their children coming out of heterosexual marriages. But of course, right away, we're representing gay men who also were losing custody of visitation with their kids and representing women who were fired from their jobs. One of the first cases was representing an Alameda County Sheriff's deputy who was fired from her job as a sheriff's deputy when she came out as a lesbian. I would assume those early years probably were a bit of a struggle for money and, and establishment and such, which is kind of hard for me to see now because it's such an institution now. I mean, I remember when I was first in town, I mean, NCLR was where we held immigration equality meetings. I mean, right. you guys have been great supporters of, of so many things. Um, was there a point where things kind of, and again, this was before you were on, on the staff, I'm sure, but I mean, was there a point when things became less hard scrabble, less, you know, struggling to survive, and when it became hey, we're, you know, this is something that A, is going to stick around, and B, that you could tell other people were seeing it as an important institution, or even that your enemies were afraid of you and you knew you had some power. Yeah, that's such a great question, and because I do think every, every organization, especially a nonprofit doing civil rights and justice work, um, wants to maintain relevancy, and you want to be still doing consequential work. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to ask your th yourself that question as an organization all the time. Definitely in those early years, there was no doubt that then the Lesbian Rights Project was needed because clearly lesbians were being targeted and gay men were being targeted in a huge way for all sorts of oppression and stigma. But I think the moment where both uh, Donna Hitchens, our founder, and then Roberta Actenberg, our follow-on to Donna as executive director, when they recognized we were going to be a thing mm -hmm. and we weren't going anywhere, was probably in the mid to late 1980s. That's when they changed the name from the Lesbian Rights Project to the National Center for Lesbian Rights because we were doing national work and wanted that reflected mm -hmm. in the name. And the other thing that was happening is we were representing the entire community we were recognizing, as good feminists do, <laughs> that issues are cross-cutting and that the only way you do work on behalf of women or lesbians is if you do work on behalf of gay men, on behalf of bisexuals, on behalf of transgender individuals, because these issues are just inextricably linked. All of our oppressions are linked. And so I think it was probably the, the late 1980s where they recognized this wasn't just a flash in the pan. This wasn't just something that was going to be temporary and deal with a couple of issues and then move on. This was going to be an enduring national and certainly San Francisco institution that we wanted our community to be proud of. Here's an interesting thing is that, you know, especially during the marriage equality fight, and we were given the opportunity to hear the oral arguments in court, um, it, it was, I'm just going to call it for what it is, it was kind of bat crazy to hear the opposing counsel you know say things that it, like gay and lesbian families are unfit or were mentally ill and we can't have children we can't raise children I would imagine that those arguments were also there at the very early you know stages of NCLR and arguing for lesbian parents or gay mom and, or dads um, so I wanted to hear your perspective because you obviously have the privy to know 
what the oral arguments were 40 years ago, and were they practically almost the same 40 years later? Again, the I love these questions because it's so, um, it, it's both a marker of how far we've come and a mark of how far we have to go. So 40 years ago, and like we don't even have to go that far. When I started at NCLR in 1994 as legal director, mm -hmm. I came from Utah. I mean, I grew up Mormon in Utah, so I felt like I understood oppression of queer people pretty well, yet I was shocked <coughs> at how toxic this country was for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And I remember being pretty shattered by it, and it took me maybe three or four months to kind of catch my groove and get my equilibrium back. Uh, I just had no idea it was that suffocatingly oppressive for LGBTQ people. Um, because in that, in that time, even just 1994, this is 23 years ago. I mean, this is just a little longer than the life of my son who's in college. It was ubiquitous. Discrimination was ubiquitous. Losing custody of your kids was ubiquitous. Losing jobs was a commonplace occurrence. Being kicked out of homes and families. Even 23 years ago, we did not have key leaders we could look to as inspiration. Few even entertainers were out. Um, there were very few elected officials. Mm -hmm. we n a president never uttered the words homosexual unless it was in a negative context and certainly never the words gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. And now you look now, I mean, yes, we still see those arguments, but they're from our opponents. They're not from our neighbors and our coworkers. That's the change we've made. We have opponents, we have enemies, but we also have a community of people, non-gay people, who embrace and support us, who know us, and who love us, and that has changed markedly for the better. Great point. You mentioned again uh, the early cases, jobs and custody. What's the core of the cases you take on now? Are, is that still the largest percentage of them, or is it more... I don't know what, what they might be now today. Well, the good news is we've made huge progress in family law issues. Mm -hmm. It is no longer the case anywhere in this country, even a state Alabama. Like Alabama. <laughs> I knew you were going <laughs> to say Alabama. It's like, why Alabama is just, poor Alabama. But you know what? If they elect Roy Moore, they deserve. They deserve to have the status as the, the one of the most difficult places to live as an LGBTQ person or a progressive person at all. But even in Alabama, sexual orientation in and of itself is not a basis for losing custody of your kids. We still do a lot of employment work because it is still legal in most places in this country to be fired simply based on your sexual orientation or your gender identity. But in this moment, as is true for every organization that cares about our Constitution and our democracy, our greatest fight is resisting and fighting back against this venal um, and incompetent and toxic and rapidly hostile administration. And we've been enormously successful in challenging the administration's ban on transgender service members. We were first out of the gate with a lawsuit. We got the first injunction in joining that ban from going into effect. And just last week, we won another ruling from the court saying that they could not stop the enlistment, the planned enlistment beginning January 1 of individuals who are transgender who wish to serve in the military. So we're taking it to the teeth of this administration, and that's some of our most important work right now. I, I'm curious to know about uh, the reaction of the administration. I mean, I, I think that for a lot of people, seeing the kind of support that we have that you had just mentioned, like social you know, and societal support from our neighbors, from 
our churches, from our employ employers, you know, it might come to a shock because before, we, even if the president or someone like the president wanted to make a decision like this that was discriminatory towards the LGBTQ community, I don't think we've mobilized in this way uh, ever before. But correct me because, you know, you're, you're the skilled one. I'm just here doing the radio program. What do you think? No, I, well, I think it's what's interesting is that we're not mobilizing by ourselves. We've, there's a whole generation of young people um, who came up, uh, you know, two generations, three generations behind me for, who had gay friends, who have transgender friends or family members. And for them, they're our biggest allies. The parents in my kid's school, as we were fighting marriage here in California, were some of the biggest champions. We've, because we've been open and out, that exhortation of Harvey Milk to be out, because of films like It's Elementary and Let's Get Real and Straight Laced by Deborah Chasnoff, our dear iconic filmmaker here in the Bay Area who just died of metastatic breast cancer last week, was just at her memorial service a couple of days ago. Um, we have a whole new generation of people who think about queer issues and LGBT people differently. So what we've mobilized to fight back against the attacks the administration announced is not just transgender people who care about the transgender military ban, but lesbian, gay, bisexual people who care about that, and a whole cadre of non-queer people who absolutely look at that and say, we will not allow that to happen on our watch. When we announced our lawsuit, and it was covered widely in the media, my, my social media was blowing up, unqualified support from every person that I saw who spoke about it. And I'm not counting, you know, our opposition, who is not gonna be reached, or our enemies. But just your run-of-the-mill folks looking at that announcement of that ban and saying, oh no, that's wrong. Um, over the past 40, I mean, what was it? 76, 1980, 1984, you did not have presidential candidates actually making LGBTQI folks part of their coalition. They were, you know, they were run against, if you remember 1984, the San Francisco values thing. Uh, that was the year they had the convention here. You know, the Republicans just ran on this whole idea of, oh, the, it's all the crazy stuff you don't want anything to do with. And this past year, the result was not what folks had hoped for, but the fact was the popular vote went to a candidate who very strongly supported LGBTQI folks and her most closest uh, uh, rival on the Democratic Party also has been a vocal supporter. I mean, it, it has been, a, to, get, to use the cliche, I mean, a tsunami of, 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 of that support and the growth in those allies that we have. Um, do you, see, how do you then kind of look at what's happening with the Trump-Pence administration? Is this an aberration or is this uh, what some people are saying is kind of, no, no, that, that hardcore nationalist, uh, you know, re refusing to go along with any of these, these social developments, but that's always been there, and we've just kind of like pulled the lid off it and we're now seeing it, meaning is this going to be something we're going to have to tackle? Has our progress not been as much as we wanted to be to, I guess, be a bit of a pessimist? Well, it's always been there. I mean, the idea that Obama being elected somehow got rid of racism yeah. uh, was obviously uh, facetious in the extreme. Um, what I, I was as shocked and dismayed and really 
you know, shattered as anyone at the uh, results of the election. Um, it was definitely multiple days that I thought, holy hell, what has just happened and where is this country headed? Right. And it's been worse than my worst fears. But, but, and this is where my preternatural optimism shows up, while I, while I will not in any way minimize the damage and the danger done by this administration and how terrorizing it is for so many people who don't enjoy the privileges that I enjoy, who don't enjoy the privileges that many of us in San Francisco enjoy, being in California, the protections we enjoy. I don't want to minimize that at all. I do think that having this administration normalize and center white nationalism and white supremacy and misogyny and venality at its highest level and corruption, I do think that has planted the seeds for the revolution that we need mm -hmm. to actually really address racism and white supremacy and misogyny and corruption and the power of men, mostly men, uh, who uh, are, are, are fixedly uh, obsessed with their own narcissistic uh, interests. There may be something there where we could actually remake society to take back, because now it's threatened in a way that it never was before, and it wouldn't have been threatened if Hillary had won. Yeah. And the threat, I think, has woke people in a way that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise. Now, you know, knock on all sorts of wood wherever you are, but I, I hope that that's what we will see, is that it, we will awaken people who realize that if you want this nation to reflect your values, you have to do something. It's not gonna just take care of itself. Otherwise, what's happening now will continue to happen and more and more people will be harmed. So I'm hoping for revolution. If you're just joining us, you're uh, joining the Michelle Miao Show, which is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Here at the Commonwealth Club, John Zipper is our co-host. And our guest today is Kate Kendall, who is the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And as part of our kickoff, we're looking back at iconic LGBTQ organizations who have served the community for, well, NCLR celebrating its 40th anniversary, so about 40 years now. Um, Kate, uh, you know, just yes, we know that this administration and the president is vile, but we also, to your point, when we have to be active, need to be thinking about what we're doing within our community, our cities, as, as John has mentioned over and over again on this show, and, and even statewide. We saw something amazing happen in the most recent, uh, you know, um, special election in which an incredible group of diverse people were uh, elected. I want to talk about something called religious freedom, which I think, you know, each state is treating in a different way. But there's a case that the Supreme Court is going to hear uh, come December 5th, and that's the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission case. And this case is extremely important for a lot of reasons. It touches on this argument that, that even our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, think that people should have a right to discriminate you know, based off of this religious freedom idea. So give us your thoughts on why this case is important and what do you think, you know, the outcome might be and why mobilizing from even a statewide uh, perspective is important to beat cases like this. This case is probably as important as any case the Supreme Court has ever heard 
uh, impacting the lives of not just LGBTQ people, but really it goes to the most fundamental question in a, in a pluralistic democracy. Do we have a cultural compact where we understand that there's a greater good, or are we all gonna just be in it for ourselves? Are we only interested in protecting our own self-interest? And that's the question these cases present because what they essentially say is you can be in business in the open market and openly choose to refuse to serve people, uh, in this case based on their sexual orientation or their gender identity, but that could easily be extended to other identities the one doesn't like or finds uncomfortable, people in a wheelchair, uh, people who don't speak um, uh, what you think is proper English, uh, people who have some other sort of disability or people whose religion is different from you. Um, we have a contract in this country that if you're gonna do business in the public square, you serve all people equally. And that is how, that's the social contract that we create. You can have whatever religious beliefs you want. You can find the idea of same-sex couples marrying odious. But if you rent apartments, or you bake cakes, or you are run a floral shop, or you own a restaurant, you serve people irrespective of who they are and their identity and how they appear. And that's been how we've gotten along. And that, has, that is a very bedrock principle of constitutional law. And cases that have challenged that have lost again and again. But we're concerned that the court might carve out an exception in that bedrock law when it comes to LGBTQ people. And if that happens, um, it will essentially be not just a free-for-all against LGBTQ people where depending on the block that you enter and the store that you enter, you may be discriminating against, discriminating against or may not. But it also continues to foment this tribalism that this administration has as its hallmark, which is everybody bands with the people who are most like them and everyone else is considered to be an enemy. And I feel like that is the beginning of the end <laughs> of a, a magnificent experiment in a pluralistic democracy where you put all sorts of different people together and they find a way to kind of work it out. It's not everybody gets their own way 100% of the time. You compromise a little bit and you give up a little bit, but it's in the interest of having us all work things out and get along together. That is really what's at stake, much more than the future of rights for LGBTQ people. I want to offer you a chance to defend lawyers. <laughs> oh, I have every. I know every lawyer joke. Great. Well, <laughs> I, you know, lawyers get get joked about and and insulted all the time, but um, you are in positions of really being able to do something. So um, why? And, and so I was. Uh, we have an intern upstairs. Yesterday, I was hearing he was going to be taking the LSAT, and uh, he was mentioning they actually do it. They do the testing less often than they used to because they have fewer people trying to go into law school. Tell us why people should go into law school, why should they should become lawyers, what can they do? Lawyers in every single society that has been most under threat, most recently in India, mm -hmm. have been at the forefront of defending civil society. Lawyers are the ones, uh, for example, when the Muslim ban was announced from this administration, mm -hmm. it was lawyers who showed up at the airport, even if they knew nothing about immigration law, and had never even met a Muslim, showed up at airports to be there to defend and represent Muslims who might be netted up in this ban. Because 
in a constitutional democracy, you have a system of laws, and those laws are ordered in all sorts of ways, which we have can have a whole critique about the criminal justice system, for example. We can have a whole critique about that, the prison industrial complex, a whole critique about that. But at its core, you have a system of laws, and you need to have individuals who are able to have those laws to require that those laws and make argument that those laws be applied to protect individual liberty against the tyranny of the majority or the tyranny of the government. That is the space that lawyers stand in. And, and it doesn't, you don't have to be a civil rights lawyer. Many of the lawyers that showed up at these airports were corporate lawyers, mm -hmm. tax lawyers. I don't know why you'd ever be a tax lawyer, but many of them were tax lawyers. And so it, the lawyers play a really important role. And, and I think what I would say, and I've said this to many, many a young person who's come to me about should they go to law school, you absolutely should, but only if, and this is what the criteria I require, you have a passion for defending this democracy and the Constitution, and whatever area of law you practice in, you will devote a portion of your time to represent individuals pro bono and to do work that advances that civil society that makes it possible for you to even be a lawyer and to have the privilege of standing in that courtroom and making arguments that you will, as often as you can, be on the side of, of moving this, you know, bending that arc of history uh, toward justice. As we're winding down on time, I mean, this is a perfect segue for one of my ending questions. And that was, you know, you said something at the gala, like, yeah, we've we've come a long ways, 40 years worth of work. That's something to celebrate, but we also have a whole lot more work to do. I actually think to defend democracy, democracy it's a lifetime thing. Like, I don't think NCLR is going away anytime soon or ever. What do you think of that statement? I agree with that. I think it's a little bit like, you know, in this culture, um, which is so riven uh, and and has so failed to address issues of race, for those of us who are white, uh, unlearning racism is an everyday endeavor. You're never done. And I think it's the same, to your point, it's the same way in defending democracy and making sure this country actually lives the ideals of equality for all, liberty and justice for all. We fall short of those ideals and have fallen massively short, shamefully short, multiple times. But yet, we still believe that those are ideals worth fighting for. So we inexorably kind of lurch towards those goals, um, but we have to always believe that our reach can exceed our grasp, but we have to keep reaching. Uh, Otherwise, everything we care about in this country, the values, how we want our children to live, what we say we care about, um, rings hollow and could be imperiled. Great. I couldn't have said it, um, definitely couldn't have said it better, so. Any, any last questions, John? <sighs> what is the most exciting case or important case you guys have dealt with during your time at NCLR? I love that it's uh, actually the very most recent litigation, and that is the challenge to the trans-military ban. Yep. In our 40 years, we've never sued a president. <laughs> I not think not even Reagan. Not even Reagan, not even Reagan. Although, you, uh, although organizations did sue the administration over their um, complete uh, ignorance that led to the pileup of bodies during the, AIDS, the height of the AIDS crisis. Mm. Um, 
we were not directly involved in that litigation. This is the first time we've ever had to sue an administration, and I think this is a good administration to sue. And it it requires you know an enormous um, belief uh, in the rightness of what you're doing. The stakes are so high, but if we win this um, challenge to Trump's announced ban against transgender individuals serving in the military, not just will it be good for transgender people, it'll be a tremendous victory for all LGBTQ people and for basic principles of equality. It will, it will require and it will indicate that if we, we win, when we win, it will indicate that this country actually walks the talk of that we are all created equal under the law. Kate, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on uh, our second ever production at the Commonwealth Club. This is just so special. My it's my honor and privilege. Thank I'll you. be able to tell my kids. And John, will you have kids? Probably Maybe not. his future kids. I'll, I'll meet kids on the Nieces street. Nieces, nephews, I'll tell them. nieces, nephews. That we had Kate Kendall on for the second ever production of the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club. But thank you for that, and also thank you for the work that you do with NCLR. You're most welcome. My pleasure. Welcome back to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. We're here at the Commonwealth Club. It is our second ever production here at the Commonwealth Club. Our co-host, John Zipper, is here with us. John, this yeah. is exciting. This is fun. We had a great first half, and we know we're going to have a great second half of this show. So the point of the program is to bring thought leaders to the San Francisco Bay Area and our communities, and the program will will specifically include LGBTQI thought leaders. And so our next guest, we're very excited to have her mm -hmm. and, and very excited for her in the Palm Springs area is Lisa Middleton, who, who has just been elected to Palm Springs City Council. She is the first, as I said uh, during the break, she is the first transgender person to be elected to a non-judicial office in California. And we're, you, you know how we are in the LGBTQ community. We are absolutely thrilled for the first of anything. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle and John. Congratulations on your election. Thank you very much. I was reading a bit about uh, your past, and you've been involved in neighborhood and, and city activities in Palm Springs for quite some time. Why did you go that route? Why didn't you, you know, I don't know, just ignore things, let someone else fix it? I mean, are you the type of person who has to make sure something gets done and make sure it gets done right? Uh, it's fun getting involved in the neighborhoods in yeah. Palm Springs. Uh, we have uh, extremely active neighborhood organizations, and uh, but I very honestly tell people that uh, when I first got involved in my particular neighborhood, uh, we just moved into town, and I thought it would be a great way to meet people. Uh, next thing you know, uh, I have met hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Wow. You're also involved in, I believe, uh, even a network of, like a national network of community organizations and, and neighborhood uh, uh, councils. Is that right? I got involved uh, a few years ago with Neighborhoods USA, which is uh, a wonderful organization that puts on a conference every year nationally. Uh, this upcoming year, we will be in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and generally draws about 800 to 1,000 community activists from around the country. Great opportunity to 
exchange ideas, exchange information about uh, community programs that are working in uh, various cities. Uh, and we are absolutely thrilled that in 2019, uh, Neighborhoods USA will be coming to Palm Springs. Oh, wow. Great. Now, before I let Michelle talk again, <laughs> she, she mentioned earlier, of course, you're the first transgender person in California elected to a non-judicial place. There was another first uh, that was established with your election, which is that Palm Springs now, its city council is 100% LGBTQ folks. Is that correct? That is correct. We've been majority LGBTQ for uh, over a decade, uh, but uh, with this election, uh, it's now uh, uh, all five of us uh, identify as LGBTQ, and I think we are uh, very much the first city in the United States that has uh, uh, the L, the G, the B, and the T uh, covered. <laughs> This is so exciting. I mean, you know, the first of, of anything in our community is incredibly exciting, especially for many of us um, who, you know, feeling uh, emotions of like rejection or, or ideas or thoughts or attitudes that we could never be in positions or become elected officials. Mm -hmm. What is being the, you know, or being elected, what is being a part of this whole new uh what I consider like this wave of progress that we've made in this country, what does it mean to you? Uh, it's unbelievably uh, humbling and affirming uh, at the same time uh, to have, uh, I'm 65 years old. Uh, I have been out uh, for over 20 years as transgender, uh, almost as long as a lesbian as well. And, uh, to have a community that uh, embraces someone uh, in the manner that uh, uh, my wife and I have been embraced in Palm Springs is uh, an incredible feeling. And uh, uh, we are a city that uh, cares, uh, and we are a city that is absolutely uh, uh, a rock star uh, place to live. What... Uh what is what are your goals in office? What do you want to accomplish? Uh, some really uh, straightforward uh, issues. We've got uh, some budget uh, uh, issues to uh, to deal with, uh, public safety, and uh, increasing our police and fire services, uh, and a uh, couple of issues that I want to really concentrate on: uh, improving. Uh, the homelessness situation in Palm Springs and making Palm Springs the leader uh, nationally in the use of renewable energy. Uh, we get over 350 days of sunshine, and we have, within our city limits, some of the best land on planet Earth uh, for wind energy. Yeah, I think I saw you were looking at, uh, I, I don't know if this has already passed or this is something you wanted to uh, propose, but a, a law requiring any new construction have solar uh, uh, panels on the roof. Is that right? Uh, that is still pending in front of the city council. I was, uh, as a member of the planning commission, uh, one of the individuals who took the lead on getting uh, that through the planning commission, working with my colleague David Friedman on the sustainability commission. Uh, and uh, I am very hopeful that we uh, will have the votes to 
uh, require uh, solar on all new construction and all major remodels. And for a city like Palm Springs, uh, I think the key, uh, since we have so many buildings that are already built, is uh, that solar requirement for major remodels. I really want to just hear your thoughts on, you know, uh, again, being elected in a political office during this time. And, and of course, uh, we can't get away from the fact that you're elected into office during Donald Trump's um, reign as, as president here in the United States. But, uh, you know, with Palm Springs specifically, be, the, the, the council being all LGBTQ, it almost sounds like a pride committee. Um <laughs> In in a lot of ways, and what's fascinating to me is that, you know, we have heard stories uh, over the years of how we've left off transgender issues in our fight for LGBT equality because we we had felt, you know, over the years that we couldn't get the support from the country if we had included transgender people or transgender issues. So I wanted to hear your thoughts, uh, and especially during the campaign trail, of you know maybe how that's changed. Are we coming together as a community more now than ever? I think uh, the LGBTQ uh, community absolutely is coming together, and uh, uh, I was one of eight individuals who identify as transgender who was elected uh, uh, to public office this November. Uh, previous to that, we had seven. Uh, nationally, so we've more than doubled in one night. Uh, so much of that has to do with uh, the political uh, strength that has grown within the LGBT community. Uh, I received uh, the endorsement of the Victory Fund. I was a Victory Fund fellow. Uh, was able to participate in their training programs, which clearly made me a stronger uh, candidate, uh, but also uh, Equality California here in California has been an absolutely outstanding organization uh, for increasing uh, visibility of uh, LGBT uh, issues and supporting LGBT candidates, and uh, uh, I, I I'm biased. I sit on the board of directors for the Equality California Institute, uh, but that organization has made such a difference for LGBT candidates. I kind of wonder if you want to do a bit of a sales job for your city. So what can Palm Beach, which clearly is, is LGBTQ friendly, what can they teach other communities? Palm Springs can teach you how a affirming LGBT community is also a community that embraces people across the spectrum and has a dynamic economic base in our community. One of the things I am most proud of is the number of uh, individuals who came up to me during the course of the campaign and said, you need to know that I am a conservative Republican. I've never voted for a Democrat before, but I'm voting for you because I believe in the way that you have conducted yourself 
uh, in neighborhood organizations and on the planning commission. Uh, I believe in your message, and I believe you're going to build a better community for all of us. Wow, you you locked up the conservative Republican vote. <laughs> I didn't get all of it. I got a I got a number of yeah. uh, uh, conservative Republicans, and we do have uh, uh, we're, we voted over seventy percent for Hillary Clinton in the last uh, campaign. Uh, but uh, we still have uh, about a quarter of our population that is registered Republican. And uh, I had, I don't know how many of them that uh, told me they Lisa, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule. I mean, doing the interview in your car. That, <laughs> that is dedication right there. Is that but, a Michelle Meowford? <laughs> I think, well, <laughs> have I done it in the car? Uh, I might have done it in the car a couple times. Um, <laughs> Anyway, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us here. Congratulations on uh, being elected as, as council member here in Palm Springs. We're thrilled for, for you and the city. And come by again on the show. Anytime you ask me. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, we have a few minutes, and John and I usually wrap with our final thoughts. Uh, if, 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 if any of you have to go, I know we were running late and testing things. Please feel free to do so. Uh, I should point out that uh, the doors on the lock, or the locks on the doors, were created by Matt Lauer, so they might not open until we... <laughs> oh! Right. I apologize. Oh. I apologize. That was unworthy of the Commonwealth Club. Um... So, you know, we, we have thoughts or ideas, and we do intend to take questions from the audience for a guest in a future program. And yeah. we're, we're, again, we're testing it out. We're, test, we're even just the um, chemistry of going back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we could take questions if, if anybody in the audience has questions. You could ask us anything. So, Michelle, I know you've had your show for several years now. Um, and... It's awesome to see these developments with organizations like the Commonwealth Club. So what did it take to get here, and, and why now, and what can we expect from this kind of partnership from a content perspective going forward? To answer that uh, very, you know, in a, in, a, in a short way, blood, sweat, and tear, that's what it <laughs> took. <laughs> took my future uh, firstborn baby. Um, and a lot of hard work, yeah. But this has been, you know, a passion of mine for over 10 years, and I was explaining to somebody who identifies as a millennial uh, and who told me that I'm a millennial yesterday. She came into the studio and asked the same question and, and, and was like, why don't you have more followers? Like, why aren't you, like, more active on Snapchat? And why aren't you doing stuff on YouTube and all these things that, you know, millennials live and breathe in, on the Internet? I didn't start the show for, you know, a, uh, uh, for the reasons why people would start, like, a social media channel. Like, people love that whole passive attention thing, right? You're sitting at your computer and, and you see, like, a million likes or a million followers and, and that's just the era and where we're at from an intera interaction point of view. But a decade ago, 
you know, LGBTQ people were not popular. Transgender people were not on uh, TV. And if they were, they were not on TV as credible people. And I started the show because it was kind of like therapy for me. It was, it was my way of sitting in a studio talking to another queer person who didn't live in San Francisco. And we just, that's what it was, was these authentic conversations. So my intention was never to, you know, make a ton of friends on Facebook or have a ton of likes, but it was to have these normal discussions about our lives, these authentic conversations about the issues that we face. And then this thing happened with Donald Trump. And I honestly don't know that if Donald Trump you know, we're not elected, that there there wouldn't be this big push for programs like the Michelle Miao show to continue on. I think we got to a place where if all LGBTQ people were included in the media, uh, you know, we would we would assimilate into a heteronormative society um, in a lot of ways. And uh, that's why you're seeing, you know, even the mar most marginalized and vulnerable people in our community speak up more. So in a lot of ways, why now? Well, why now is because we realize that we could go very, very far in our fight for equal rights, and it could potentially be taken away immediately. And I think going back to what Kate Kendall said about, you know, fighting for democracy or, or defending it, you know, it, 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 it's not supposed to be at this point where that's just it. So I learned even for 10 years from doing this that, there's always going to be a need for a program like this because there's always going to be a need to have honest, true discussions about the people we are, why we exist, why we matter, why we should be treated equally. And then to, to just talk about Commonwealth Club, I mean, uh, what I love about Commonwealth Club is that that's that, is that they bring people to a platform like this to have discussions. And it can be a far right person, it can be a far left person, it can be a queer person, it can be a straight person. All these people come together to have these conversations, and that really is the core of like what I do. So it was really a natural partnership. And the first forum that we put together with San Francisco Pride and Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter um, in, in talking about you know why uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is inclusive of LGBTQI people. It was incredibly successful, and I think for us, sold we realized, forum. yeah, it was a sold-out forum for for both of us. We realized that this intersectional approach, this is where growth happens. We didn't call it that back in the '70s. We didn't call it that until you know Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality, but but now we understand it, and and it's our job to to continue on with it. If John wants to say anything about Commonwealth Club. Uh, just, we've actually been, it's now been several years that we've been doing stuff with Michelle. And on Tuesdays, I had been going over to her studio and, and co-hosting with her. But uh, we all, I think both of us were always kind of looking for some ways to take it bigger. The Commonwealth Club has for decades done LGBTQ programming. Not a lot of it, though. Um, and it's kind of been, we've had uh, a member who had been programming stuff, but it kind of was always dependent upon their schedule and their willingness to uh, really put a lot into it and so we're thrilled about it because this allows us to take it not just to a more frequent uh, you know a greater frequency of stuff but you know M Michelle knows everybody so uh, we're really excited about all the people she's going to be bringing to our stage.
this question is for both of you. Um, if you could bring anyone on the show, like if anyone you would you would call would come, uh, who would it be and what would you ask them? If I could bring anybody on the show, who would it be and what would I ask them? Jeez. Um, I, 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 there's so many people that I want to talk to, uh, but honestly, I think Hillary Clinton's on top of my list, and the reason why is because I feel like she's done so many interviews that uh, I think people were, have been asking the wrong question, and I really would like to ask her a very human question of, you know, how are you? Like, she's human, and she's become something else to us. Like, for some of us, she's become, like, a goddess. Like, we can't even get, you know, beyond the fact that this woman almost, or she did break the glass ceiling, almost became the president of the United States, and we, uh, we almost worship her in that way, right, from a very uh, positive perspective. And then there's some of us in America who see her as this cold-hearted machine robot political uh, genius or non-genius or she's a liar and like all this stuff but has anybody ever sat her down and like oprah her and like you know <laughs> like asked her like a very honest question of how are you so that that would be my like biggest dream um i agree that there are tons of people you can think of who would just be wonderful to have there for 30 minutes or an hour um I think specifically to, to like talk about particularly LGBTQ stuff, Pope Francis. Oh wow! I'm not Catholic, but for someone who clearly has wrestled with it, has made some changes, and yet has is not fully on board, if you will. Um, I would, you know, again, if you could get really good questions and good answers, and, you know, in a good forum where he would actually really explain some stuff that I think both Catholics and non-Catholics don't understand about his approach to LGBTQ and, and all human rights stuff. You know, he's in Myanmar this week uh, and dealing with, you know, human rights issues there. Um, I would find that fascinating. That probably would top my list right now. It'll, my, the top of my list probably changes every week or so. But Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great one. That's a really good one. So Pope Francis and Hillary Clinton together on one stage would be... Oh, yeah. I would ask Hillary if she's ever kissed a girl. <laughs> Any other questions? We, might, we, have probably, we have like a couple minutes or so to fill. So we'll take another question. So I guess, you know, and so you have a, a millennial who asks you, why aren't you using social media to broadcast your message? So I guess the question is, to any of the millennials who are social media savvy influencers, um, like, would you accept support from other people to amplify your message to reach the Hillary Clintons and the, you know, Pope Francis people? Um, and if so, I just wanted to say for any of those people that are listening that do that, that like, this is such an amazing opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you know, just a, the question is about what I said in terms of social media and my mm -hmm. poor use of it when I started this 10 years ago. I mean, Facebook just started. I think I was on MySpace at the time. Yeah. 
You've got you an know, old soul. I, I kind of do. And and uh, and then when Twitter exploded and all that, I was like, what do you want me to say in less than 45, you know, characters? Is that what they call it? 45 words? Or 140. It's now 280, oh, though. So oh, it's now 200. See, go for it. And I thought it was just so odd that people were, like, screaming at other people on this, you know, internet thing or, um, you know, Twitter. Uh, so I'm just saying that I, I just... I didn't embrace it as the millennials did, but if millennials wanted to help us now, of course we would embrace that. Uh, but it did take a decade. It did take it. It had to take a decade. And I had to argue with the millennials that what am I talking about? I'm talking about stuff that you don't want to, you don't want to hear. Like for some of us who are living online, it's just easier to post, you know, feel good photos or share articles about this and that. But when we have to get into these hard, serious discussions about our lives, like HIV AIDS or, uh, you know, discrimination or racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, even within our own community, that's not popular. That's not let's hit like. And so at this point, you know, to get to a place where now we feel the risk, we feel uh, that, that that it's possible for someone like Donald Trump to get elected and steal an election or an, a foreign country. I mean, for some for some of us, it's like no way could a foreign country ever ever, you know, um, have any doing with our our uh, politics or our government. All of this stuff now makes us feel like okay, I should be paying attention more. So it had to take as long as it did for these types of discussions to be, to, to be embraced. So any any millennial out there who would like to take a break from, uh, you know, live YouTubing, beer pounding, uh, I invite you to to share these these amazing serious discussions we should be having. And kind of to follow up on that point, if you had to pitch to kind of you know the millennial viewers out there, it is it's high stakes for everyone, especially. Um, you know, going through this administration and forward, uh, how would you pitch the show? How would I pitch the show? <laughs> Can I jump in, actually? <laughs> I would pitch it because the fact that she's been doing this for so long, and that she's not someone who came along because Trump can't, was elected and suddenly, hey, look, I've got, I can do a show. She, she has been doing this. So, you know, we talk about someone who has authenticity and, and, and expertise in something. That's what she's got. So I think folks who are looking at getting involved and looking at learning more, you know, we'll start off with someone who has a good track record. Yeah. I, thank you, John. Wow, I'm blushing. Um, how would I, I mean, pitch a show? That's the hardest part is is pitching yourself. And, and again, like I'm just being very candid and honest with you that I've not done a good job marketing myself. I mean, I get shy, you know, in a lot of ways, believe it or not. And I get, I'm afraid of the Internet. Like when I read comments, you know, um, stuff like I'm just like, are these people even real? I, I know a number of, of <laughs> journalists in particular who literally never read comments on their articles yeah. or their social media. They have their spouse or someone else read them and then just forward anything that they need to deal with. Because, yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. can be a little difficult to take sometimes. Yeah. But but I would probably pitch it along the lines of why I think like something even like San Francisco Pride is very important. It, it, although it's evolved into a celebration, it's not what it was in 1969 when it was a protest. Um, 
it's still incredibly important to show visibility, to show that we matter, that we exist. You could look at this administration now, and they're doing small little things to try to to not include LGBTQ people, like something as simple as like the the census, which you know, to, to my understanding, it's not even like the census had included LGBTQ people in the first place. But if we're not included in these types of things, then access to basic care becomes non-existent to us. So my pitch is we. We need to be able to have shows like this. It's not even about me. It's about uh, a show like this because we need to have these honest, hard discussions with ourselves and not just ourselves, but with our families and not with just our families, but our communities. And that gets people really activated to be either become political or become a lawyer, become authentic so that you're not. The damage that I've seen, especially in my reading and interviewing people in the 10 years, is that the, mo- the, the more closeted we are, the less honest we are with ourselves. And then when we put ourselves out there, we make decisions that impact other people, and it becomes this like negative cycle. And then we, now what we're looking at in 2017 is going back to unwind that. Oh, okay, well, you know, if I could do it all over again, well, it's not try to do it all over again. Let's start here right now. So millennials, you, I'm looking at Sarah. I'm looking at all of you. It is our responsibility <laughs> to be honest, authentic people in our fight for equality. One last question then we'll, we're, we're going to wrap. Is there another last question? Is uh, our politics in your future? Is running for a political office in your future? <laughs> You know, it's what's so funny is in, in, uh, as I'm seeing what's happening and all these politicians and the sexual uh, harassment allegations and, and, all, and all this stuff. I mean, I, I just have such a bad pass that I don't think I can run for office. And I, and I say that jokingly just because I did go to college. I came out in college. I, you know, coming out was so liberating. I, I enjoyed uh, uh, socializing in a very social manner, (laughs) 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 I'm taking myself, I'm taking my, 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 my buddy over there in the corner. No, um, I think it is. I think, I think for a lot of us now with so many LGBTQI people being elected and running on the premise of the, uh, you know, focusing on the issues, that is electrifying. That is showing us that, this is how we're going to win local elections, we're going to win statewide elections, how we're going to make change. I think the way that politics were or have been going in this country and how we've been electing officials, um, I, I, think th- I think that that has contributed to some bad apples who have been elected. And so uh, some of these new changes that are popping up makes me feel like regardless of what I did in college, whatever beer pong game I played, it's possible for someone like me to be elected. Mayor Meow. <laughs> Mayor Meow. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming to actually our very first program with an audience. It is our second production. There is exciting programming coming up. Uh, it, we're going to do two more programs in the month of December, but, but do check back on the schedules at commonwealthclub.org for future programming. And, and just so you know, um, we have a welcome reception December 13th. Uh, so John and I will, will, will be here. There'll be food, you know, wine, good fun. Mark Leno is going to uh, be a guest speaker and some other notable people in the community. Thank you.
Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com.